The Sign Out Podcast has partnered with Outdoor by Four to bring you this conversation. Welcome to the Sign Out Podcast. Here we interview individuals who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story. Yeah, I was a couch potato as a kid and I really did not find the outdoors or um, adventure and endurance sports until my 20s. And so I was spending 60, 70, 80 hours during the week on my job because, you know, I'd go and try to get all the work done Monday to Friday and then religiously protect my weekends. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the next edition of the Sign Out podcast. Um, excellent guest we have today, Sunny Stroer, who, if you just Google her name, will find out that she has accomplished many things as a woman ultra endurance athlete, whether it's rock climbing, summiting mountains, um, ultra long runs. Um, she's pretty much done it all. So we're excited to talk to Sunny today and just learn more about her background and what drives her, what motivates her, how she gets, um, you know, comes up with these things to do and then how she trains for them and gets through those uh, huge accomplishments. So we're really excited today. Sunny, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. I'm excited to be here. So to not, let's take a couple of steps back. Um, you grew up in Germany, right? I did, yes. I am a born and bred German. Um, I've now spent more than half my life in the United States. So this very much feels like home, though you may still detect a little bit of an accent here or there. <laughs> um, but yeah, born and raised to German parents. And, you know, I didn't come over until I was about 19 years old. Wow. So in your growing up was outdoor camping, outdoor activities, was that a part of you as a child? Not at all. I mean, yeah, you know, I'd go hiking with my parents now and then. And both my parents were big into skiing, downhill skiing. So, you know, we'd spent the winters in the Alps and um, ski in the various resorts there, which is a very different vibe from resort skiing over here, by the way. But yeah, I was a couch potato as a kid. I was a bit of a dork. I always had my nose in a book. Um, I was a choir nerd. You know, I did debate and model United Nations and all of those things. And I really did not find the outdoors or um, adventure and endurance sports until my 20s. Wow. That's amazing when you look at uh, your list of accomplishments today. So was it more of a situation where, you know, you weren't even interested or is just your opportunities were what you had around you, which was school and books and the, you know, the yearly or annual trip to the mountains? You know, I think it was a bit of a mix of both. So one of the things that um, I came to realize about Germany after moving to the U S and particularly after moving to the American West is that Germany is incredibly crowded. You know, we have, I think by now it's 88 million people in a country that's smaller geographically than the state of California and it is just busy in Germany. That means that no matter where you look, you know, you have civilization, you have towns, you have cities, you have villages, you have farming, agriculture. I mean, there just isn't wilderness in Germany. As a matter of fact, less than 1% of the land in Germany still is wilderness. And so that idea of going far and getting outside and really getting lost in remote wilderness just isn't something that is accessible in Germany and in a lot of Europe, to be honest. So you know, I think there was a certain lack of opportunity in some ways, but that's not to say that my parents weren't trying to encourage me to be right. physically active and to get outside. I mean, I remember that as a kid, I always was supposed to, you know, go on walks with my mom and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> and uh, my parents signed me up for tennis lessons at one point and uh, my tennis coach essentially 
refused to coach me because, you know, I just was terrible. I had no hand-eye coordination, no motivation. And occasionally he tried to make us run a 1K, you know, one kilometer run through the forest. And I thought that that was the hardest thing ever and that I was going to die. So it wasn't just lack of opportunity. It was also certainly a lack of natural aptitude and just the fact that I had no interest. It's interesting you talk about Germany. I mean, I've not visited Germany, but uh, even in the States, you might even find that depending on what state you're in, your opportunities for outdoors. So I live in Houston, Texas, and and there's a lot of opportunities, but I do have to make a bigger effort to go find a public park um, because it's so there's a lot of private land ownership here where out west you might get on some, you know, Bureau of Land Management land or you can get into the mountains really quick and have a lot of access, especially in Utah. Um, some quick access, even out, if you live in Salt Lake, quickly you can be into the mountains and really just be lost and not even realize that you're 25 minutes from downtown. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, I actually spent some time living in Houston myself. I was there from 2012 until uh, 2015. Oh, wow. And yeah, you know, getting out and doing big training runs and doing big adventures locally was hard. You know, I'd go up to... Um, Oh, what's the park um, up by Sam Houston? Yeah, Huntsville State Park or or the Sam Houston National Forest. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'd go up there and run around the lake. You know, that was my big adventure training run, but that's an hour drive just to get there, right? And then it's a, what, six-mile loop around the lake. That's pretty, right. but it's not, you know, that remote or that wild. So I hear you. Yeah, you can probably still hear the traffic on 45 going by when you're in the park. That's, that's awesome that you, you live in Houston. So you grew up in Germany, but it sounds like, did you go to university, come over here for university to the States? I did. So I started out um, with college in Switzerland for a year, um, got a little bit bored over there, to be honest, and then transferred to the U.S. and spent my next seven years on the East Coast in Boston. And, um, you know, at that point, I fell in love with, with the United States and decided that I would do what I could to stay. And that led you to... Uh, graduating from Harvard, right? The master's. Yes, I did. I, <laughs> I went to Harvard both for undergrad and for grad school. It's, you know, a tremendous privilege that I had. I worked hard to get there, but it's one of those things that, you know, at this point seems to be a, um, let's call it a marginal part of my identity. You know, I feel very, very lucky to have been able sure. to do that. Yeah. It rarely surfaces in day-to-day life. Well, and I bring it up because I think it set you up for um, a really good corporate career in your 20s. Right. I mean, you work for Bain and Company, which is um, a very well-known consulting firm. So, I mean, I I think that shows you have a lot of drive, you know, wanting to come to the States, leave your home country, come over here, um, go to a very prestigious Ivy League school, um, get a really good corporate job and, you know, start in your 20s like, wow, I'm on top of the world from that standpoint. Right. Well, you know, that's kind of the history that I came with from my family. Right. I had learned that, you know, you were supposed to work hard and try to, you know, get ahead and just compete as best you can, you know, fairly and squarely, of course. And so I did all the right things, you know, I went to all the right schools and I tried to apply for all the right jobs and I got all the right promotions and I learned all the right things and built all the right networks. And yeah, I was, I was doing well. I was, you know, on a very successful kind of high performance type A track. And I did that really without questioning much about it um, up until, I'd say up until after business school, as a matter of fact, so into my mid-20s, mid to late 20s. Um, But at some point, I had to realize that, you know, I was working this really um, highly demanding and very fast-paced job 
And so I was spending 60, 70, 80 hours during the week um, on my job because, you know, I'd go and try to get all the work done Monday to Friday and then religiously protect my weekends. Since by then I had found the outdoors and I really loved spending time, you know, running, climbing, you know, just adventuring, whatever it might have been. And so I was protecting those weekends and getting out for 100 kilometer runs on the weekends to go and balance the stresses of working 80 hours from Monday to Friday. And that just wasn't working at all. Right, right. So let, let's back up a bit. You get to the States um, or you're in university. When does that, you start to have that itch of like being outdoors, challenging yourself with these runs? I mean, saying I want to go out for the weekend on a hundred kilometer run, that's a very, most people can't imagine that. So what's, what was that transition? The initial spark for it started actually the moment that I set foot here in the U.S. and um, I started at Harvard as a transfer student. Part of that transfer was a six-day orientation trip that was a backpacking um, trip with you know fellow transfer students who were up in the White Mountains and um, just were out there backpacking and, you know, kind of experiencing what it was like to try and be self-sufficient for a couple of days. And that was the very first time that I'd ever done anything like that. You know, I'd never carried a backpack before. I'd never really camped before. I mean, maybe once in my backyard as a kid, right? But I had no experience whatsoever. And I remember being absolutely miserable for part of it and then very much loving most of the rest of it. So, you know, that experience was really pivotal for me. And that's what kind of set me off in wanting to spend time outside and wanting to uh, develop my skill set in the outdoors. But I really didn't find big adventure and rock climbing and ultra running until business school. So in business school, um, I ran my first marathon just because, you know, type A, I wanted to see if I could do it. I'd run two half marathons before. The first one I ran, I thought was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I was going to die on the last mile for sure. <laughs> but, right. you know, you know how it goes. Selective amnesia. I kept coming back and ran a couple more half marathons. And then I knew that I could do that. So I was curious to see if I could maybe run a marathon too. And I ran some of those in business school. Um, still didn't consider myself a runner. Didn't really enjoy it very much, to be honest. I just did it to, you know, check off a bucket list item and to, to prove that I could do it. But then... After business school, I've been traveling uh, for uh, just over half a year. And during that time, I was volunteering for a nonprofit in Madagascar. And this is a longer story, but you know, I'll make it very short. While I was in Madagascar, I um, got the opportunity at the last minute to go and join an ultra marathon. And that ultra marathon came in three different distances. It came as a 25 kilometer race, a 50 kilometer race, or a hundred kilometer race. And now, you know, I was looking at participating, as I said, I'd done marathons before, but I had no experience with ultra running. And I looked at those distances and I said, well, that all sounds pretty hard, but the 25 kilometer run has a, a four hour cutoff. The 50 kilometer run has a 12 hour cutoff and the hundred kilometer run has a 36 hour cutoff. So if you do the math, every time the distance doubles, the time triples, right? So in theory, the 100 kilometer should be the one that was the most achievable for me. <laughs> That's how my brain worked. It's a very unique way to think about that. Exactly. So I decided to sign up for the 100 kilometer race because I was like, well, 100 kilometers, 36 hours, you know, that's essentially, I mean, 100 kilometers, is, that's like 60 miles. So you're looking at a little bit less than two miles an hour on average. Three miles an hour is regular walking pace if you're hiking. I was like, ah. 
I can probably do that, right? I'm sure it'll be hard, but I can probably figure that out. And so I signed up for that 100 kilometer race um, three weeks before the, the race and finished it. And that was the moment that turned me into both an endurance athlete and an adventure well, junkie, I guess, because I just absolutely loved it. And I decided I needed to do more of it. Had you been, I mean, at this point, is your training just your weekend activities? Or are you starting to more seriously run during the week and a little more regimen? Or are you just still just like powering through it? I'm mostly just powering through it at this point. I mean, I had, I had run a marathon in April of that year and the ultra marathon happened in July. So, you know, I'd had a decent training base for the marathon because I, you know, at that point running 26 miles was a really big deal for me. And I knew that I had to prepare for it. So I actually had some, some training background there, but then between April and July, I pretty much didn't do anything. And as a matter of fact, when I went traveling after graduation, I didn't even bring running shoes or any sort of running gear with me to Madagascar. I didn't know that hydration um, packs existed, you know, that you could carry a bladder on your back. Like that was a completely foreign concept to me. Um, I didn't have proper shoes. I mean, I had nothing and I just borrowed gear and tried to make do and, um, yeah, I just kind of fell into it. Wow. When you completed that race, um, how difficult was it for you to finish that? <laughs> oh, it was so difficult. <laughs> 10 out of 10 do not recommend to sign up for a hundred kilometer race with no training and, you know, no plan, but it was also really amazing. I mean, it was one of those things where, I ended up taking um, just over 25 hours to finish it. And I remember, you know, just before the race, I was actually sitting there and I was Googling ultra running strategies and hundred kilometer strategies, because I literally, I just, I had no idea. I think I'd heard about ultra running for the very first time a couple months prior to me doing that race. And so I was very new to the scene and I had no idea how to tackle something like that. You know, I remember the night before the race, I was walking around with a couple of friends and, you know, we're in rural Madagascar and beautiful temperatures and I'm wearing flip-flops and I could feel how my feet were sweating the whole time because I was so nervous about what was going to happen. And I had no idea whether or not I was physically and mentally capable of doing something that big. And yeah, it, it ended up being incredibly difficult. Um, the last half of the race in particular was just, you know, it was excruciating. It was brutal. It was really hard. And then after I had finished, um, you know, I had issues with my feet, you know, my Achilles tendon was really bad. I lost a number of toenails. My whole body was in revolt, essentially. I mean, I was running a fever for probably a day and a half after finishing the race because my body was just saying, what the F did you just do to me? Wow. <laughs> right? So yeah, it was very hard, but it was also a very, very, very strong runner's high that I got to experience. And just for the you know days and weeks following that race, I've I remember I was sitting at my desk and I was like, ah, you know, I, I just did that. I wonder what else I can do if I can do that. And that was really transformative. That's an amazing story. Just showing up for a hundred kilometers and then getting it done. There's a lot of perseverance in there for sure. And that, you know, one step at a time mentality that um, is needed in any of these kind of feats. So you're, you're cruising along, you take care of this, you get business school done come back and you've got a corporate world, right? Mm -hmm. And so, but, the, but at this point, the, but you've been bit by the bug, right? You know that you want to be doing this adventure, but you're like, okay, now I've got to go back to the corporate world, which is, and honestly, that's what most people deal with every day, right? Most of us have our everyday job and it's the, 
not that we live for the weekends, but our adventure is after work. What were those next um, few years like for you balancing this high pressure corporate world with this just passion of wanting to be an outdoor adventure athlete? You know, that was a bit of a rude awakening to start with. So, you know, I ran that ultra marathon while I was traveling after business school and I was traveling, you know, in the gap between graduating and starting my job at uh, Bain in Houston, actually. So I came back to Houston after running that first ultra marathon. I had had the opportunity to go to Nepal and on a shoestring budget, I just climbed my first 6,000 meter peak. So, you know, that to that whole adventure craving. And then I'd spent a lot of rock climbing in various areas. And it was really the months traveling before I landed in Houston that cemented for me that I needed the mountains and I needed adventure and that there was no way that I was giving that up. And yeah, then I moved into a nice apartment in Houston and started working at Bain. And as you were saying, you know, I was very much focused on the weekends. I mean, I was trying so hard all the time to just get out, go on trips, have adventures, um, take, you know, a Friday and a Monday off, try to make the weekends longer. I actually remember getting into trouble with my supervisors pretty early on because they were like, listen, you're brand new to the company and you're never here. Like you, you have to do something because otherwise you're not going to have a future here. So um, that was that was hard, but I knew that I needed and wanted to excel at my job. And I did. I mean, that was really important for me. I had, you know, six-figure student loans from Harvard Business School, so I needed to pay those off. And while I was doing that and I was still um, doing my best to just be an excellent consultant and to make the right promotions, I was also spending a lot of time and money on making use of that excellent airport in Houston, or both of them, and right. flying to various destinations around the country pretty much every weekend. And you know, I was able to maintain that pace and that rhythm for a good three or four years before I hit a point where I realized that it was just too much and not sustainable for me because, you know, I pretty much didn't have any ties in Houston directly. You know, I was single for a good part of the time. I didn't have family there. I never really invested the time to build a large network of friends because I was always traveling. I was always gone. Right. So um, I was just really splitting the time between working super hard or being on a red-eye flight trying to maximize my time in the outdoors and it got to a point where I was just completely burned out on both of those sides and didn't know how to move forward from there. So you at the next decision is is when do you give all that up for a different life right? Yeah and I had no plans to give up my career to quit Bain. To be honest, I thought that I needed to find a way to get the outdoor and adventure craving out of my system and just become a responsible adult. And I was very much trying to set myself up for a, a multi-year um, career at Bain or at a comparable company right. that would allow me to, you know, put some money aside, you know, hopefully retire early, just build the type of comfortable and responsible life that we're all taught to strive for and while I was trying to do that um, I actually I think I made some moves that were you know somewhat reasonable so for example when I got promoted to manager I negotiated that yes you know I would obviously accept the promotion very gratefully but I also negotiated that I would have two months of unpaid leave of absence every year so that I could try and do bigger things and 
you know, get more of a balance between work and um, the passions that I had outside of work. And I tried that for about a year, but it still just wasn't enough. And, you know, I had a project at Bain actually that ended up completely um, tipping the scales and just putting me into deep burnout where it was a, I don't want to get too deeply into it, but it was just one of those ridiculous projects where, you know, you're working 100 hour weeks or more and it seems completely impossible. And, you know, I was able to pull up the impossible with my team. But at the end of the day, after the project was over, everybody was really stoked on it. You know, the partners were happy, the clients were happy, even the team that I'd worked to death was happy. But I was standing in the boardroom crying and saying, I, I you know, can't imagine this just happened and I don't ever want to do it again. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say, it's, it, you know, your personality is, is that whatever you're doing, you want to do well. And so I, I can see that when you hit that corporate world, that's your responsibility for the day and you want to make sure you do well. And so that is a tough pull between... I wouldn't call it your passion, but you're like, this is my assignment today. I need to get this done. And I owe it to my bosses, my clients, my teammates, coworkers that we got to do this right. So I can see that being a very difficult struggle when you're working in a high paced um, environment, high stress environment, you know, very important consulting realm. So I could see that being very difficult to maintain that balance. Um, You made a comment earlier about and it, it caught me about being a responsible adult. And I think that's interesting because we've defined that in, in a certain way. What is a responsible adult, right? And I think that definition could be interesting because responsibility is taking care of yourself, taking care of those around you, you know, being a positive on society, lifting others up. And that definition can get clouded with the idea of I have to get this 40 hour a week job. I got to make X money. And, and the reason I bring that up, because it's like what you're doing is very responsible today, you know, in terms of your life as an adventurer. Um, we can talk more to the things that you're doing with the women um, adventures that you, the all women adventures you put together. But I, I just, we want to just define what is responsible adult means, but it's, it could be so broad because I think you're very responsible today. Thank you, Daniel. Well, it's actually a really good point because, you know, when you think about it, obviously our understanding of a responsible or successful or, you know, a desirable life um, is very much socially constructed and in some ways it's also fluid. But I do have to say, when I finally decided to quit my job, it felt, it felt irresponsible in some ways. You know, it felt irresponsible to walk away after I just paid off my student loans, but I really didn't have much in the bank in terms of savings. Um, no health insurance, you know, no way for me to actually have a path towards employment in the U.S. again, because I still have a German passport. And at the time I was on a work visa that was tied to my employment at Bain. So as soon as I quit Bain, you know, I had to go home first. And then, you know, when I came back, I could only be back here on a tourist visa. So I didn't have the ability to work. Right. So all of that did feel pretty irresponsible. And I think when I when I talk about irresponsibility, some of it may just be um, the level of safety net that you're creating for yourself or that you're relying on others for right so for myself I I never ended up being destitute and I never you know never kind of crossed that line into oh crap you know I pushed it too hard but the reality is that you know for long years without insurance without a way to work and without real plan of how I was going to put life back together um, I certainly feel like you know a big reason that I've 
felt comfortable doing that or that I allowed myself to do it is because I knew, well, if push comes to shove, I will be able to figure it out one way or another. You know, I have a great network of friends and family and, you know, they're not going to go and let me sleep under a bridge and be homeless, you know, with, without me wanting to be, well, home free well, because I was living in the van. Right. You would set yourself up with a good safety net. I mean, you had a quality education. You could go find a job pretty easy if you had to, um, which is it, which is nice to know. There's some comfort in that. So you, I mean, that's a big decision to, to decide I'm going to move on. And did that, did you, you've obviously been traveling doing adventures, but at that point, are you like, okay, now I'm really going to find these things that I want to accomplish? You know, not even. So okay. what ended up happening was that I had that killer project that completely burned me out and I couldn't recover from it, unfortunately, you know, even after weeks and months of much easier and much more manageable projects. And so I realized that I had to make a change. I gave notice that I was quitting my job at the end of the year. And this was in March. So I gave like nine months notice, right? I gave myself a huge off ramp to be able to settle my finances and figure out how I was going to move on from the position that I'd had. But at that point, I knew that I needed and I wanted a break because I was so just unhappy with life at the time. You know, everything on paper looked fantastic. And I was doing so well, you know, again, I had gotten really great reviews at work. I was still doing all of my adventures. I had a nice apartment. I had all the things, right? But I was waking up angry every single morning and I just couldn't figure out, I, I couldn't put myself back into balance. So I decided that I really wanted to take a break and I was trying to figure out how I would be able to stretch the little money that I had for as long as possible while giving myself permission to just do all of the things that I love to do, right? And that's running, that's climbing, that's mountaineering, that's photography, that's adventures. It's just exploration and being out there and particularly being out in the American West. And, you know, putting all of that together, I said, well, the answer is pretty obvious. You know, I'm going to go and move into a van and not one of those fancy $80,000 sprinter vans, right? But a little $3,000 Chevy Astro van that's a hand-me-down from, you know, 20 years ago. And I'll go and build it out myself on a $600 budget. And then I'm going to live very frugally and just go and live in a van for as long as I can. And once my money runs out and once I have to figure out, you know, what I want to do again, that's fine. I'm totally ready for that. But I'm just going to give myself permission to just for three months to not even think about the future, you know, for three months to just take a time out to essentially be on sabbatical and to just do the things that I love. And that's how it all started. That's awesome. I was, uh, it's funny you mentioned that about the $3,000 van. I was in Salt Lake city last week uh, at a grocery store and I pull up and the guy next to me is in a Ford escape, which is just a small SUV and it's totally set up. So he could have one side, he's got his rolled out sleeping bag, and he's, you know, he's just there for the mountains, right? You're in Salt Lake City. You're close to all the great skiing. You could just tell he's like, this is for, I want to be out. So this is how I'm going to do it. Um, I mean, you, you do what you have to. So from there, you've set out, it's been a, a fast highway of accomplishments um, for any person since that. What year was that when you were uh, leaving Bain? I quit my job on the 31st of December, 2015. So 2016 is when I started being on the road and pursuing this full time. Right. So that's, th that's not very long ago at all. And when I look at your list of accomplishments, um, it, it's amazing all the things you've done, whether it's the 
however many times you have the fastest known time up and down some major mountains, um, the different runs. Did that, so, and not to go through that exhaustive list, there's probably some we can hit on, but did it just start this snowball effect? Like, I've done this one thing. How did that start to formulate? Because you, you obviously have a passion for it, but I mean, look, that takes a lot of planning to do some of the things you've done. It, the execution is key. And when I think that it's only been, you know, it's not been a long time, right? And I don't even know if you would call yourself, at this point, you were definitely a professional mountaineering, alpinist, rock climber, and all that you do, but you weren't then, right? I definitely was not. And as a matter of fact, uh, my colleagues at work would often say, oh, you know, you want to become a sponsored athlete? And I'd say like, well, yeah, that'd be great, but there's no way I could because I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. You know, I'm not a professional athlete. Like, hey, I grew up as a couch potato, right? That's not going to be me. Um, so what happened was that, again, I kind of started out with just giving myself permission to do all the things I really wanted to do without the concern about the future. And what that meant really was that I dove into a lot of longer and bigger adventures that I hadn't had the time for before, right? So I went off and, you know, I did some bigger runs and bigger mountains and, you know, big paddling trips and all of that. And really what happened on the speed record side and, you know, the FKTs and the, the achievements and the records was actually that I went down to Argentina to a mountain called Aconcagua. It's uh, one of the seven summits, so one of the highest summits on each continent. It's almost 23,000 feet tall. And I'd climbed it before, but I had climbed it solo and unsupported back in 2014, didn't have a great experience there. And I had wanted to come back and return to that mountain with an all-female team because I thought that that was going to be way more fun than doing it solo. So, you know, I had plans to go back onto that mountain and I had spent the whole year at this point you know, because this is winter of 2016, early 2017, I'd spent the whole year running and being out on trails and essentially, you know, training without really training and got to Argentina. And I had started to hear about these fastest known times or, you know, speed records as they're called. And I knew that there was a woman who had just very recently created the first speed record on Aconcagua. And I looked at it and thought, you know what, maybe I could try for that. I mean, probably not, but why not, right? This sounds really cool. I have the time to be down there and I feel fit and I can train a little bit and, you know, I can try and raise some funds to actually put the money together to make a project like this happen. And yeah, so it was just this random idea that I had um, for absolutely no reason other than that I love the mountains and I love long distance running. And I decided to try for it. Now, what was really advantageous for me, and this was kind of the, you know, I'd say the big break that I caught was that the women's team that I led on the mountain that season, that was just a regular expedition, right, that helped me pre-acclimatize, but it was just a regular climb with a group of, uh, of three other women. Part of that team was a woman by the name of Libby Sauter, who is a very, very, very amazing, impressive, capable rock climber who sponsored by Adidas Outdoor at the time. Um, she has a spirit in Yosemite on El Capitan's The Nose. So, you know, a very proficient big wall climber and a professional athlete already at that point, well-established. So she had decided to sign on to my women's team because she wanted to get more into mountaineering and into high altitude. And 
she also had had the same process of thought that I had looking at the mountain saying like, oh, you know, women's speed record, maybe I could do that. Now, she, of course, already had that professional athlete background and had a basis for actually wanting to attempt this. Because she was trying for the speed record and she had set up this project with Adidas, she had plans in motion already to have a photographer down there. She had, you know, some press connections and just media coverage lined up and all of that. And initially, her and I were not working together. We were actually planning on probably competing, but finally decided that, you know, we got along great and we we're both trying to go for the same thing. So why not just team up and try to do it together? And at that point, um, you know, long story short, we were working on the speed record that we had had our eyes on. We weren't actually successful, but in the process of training for it, I was able to establish a speed record from base camp to the summit. And um, thanks to the media connections that Libby already had, you know, that attracted some attention in uh, the outdoor media. And that's really what got me started on my path. So it was a combination of, you know, serendipity, determination and a lot of luck. Well, I mean, and there's a lot of hard work in there too. I mean, the the luck comes from a lot of connections you made with other people, and you know the the, the all woman expedition you put together. So, um, your passion is served well in there, and to allow you to do those different things. But I want to take a step back um, and talk a little bit about the common person who looks at like that particular that mountain, goes on YouTube, checks out you know, the expedition where you led the women up there and just looks at that and says, there's just no way. Like, I can't do that. Like I'm sitting on the couch today. I can't walk down the street, you know, without losing my breath. What, what What's your advice to those people that are still going to work, you know, the 50 hours a week, but, um, but they need to be outside. Yeah. You know, I am that person. I've been that person. You know, I still struggle at times when I haven't been out and trained for a while and, you know, and go for a walk with my dog and I hike up the hill and, you know, <laughs> I can't keep up with her. Right. So um, my advice would be if this is something that sounds at all appealing and it doesn't have to be a 23,000 foot mountain, right. It could be the hill next to your house. It could be a 14 er in Colorado. It could be whatever. If that sounds like something that you look at and you say, Oh man, you know, I wish I could do that. If you want to do it, you can. It's not a question of you know where you are in life right now. It's not a question of having grown up as an athlete. You know, as a kid, it's not a question of natural aptitude. I promise that you know when I was young, my teachers all looked at me and they were certain that I had zero natural aptitude. It's a matter of is this something that grabs your desire and grabs your imagination and that sparks. Um, a passion that you want to do. And if so, then, you know, stop wishing and start planning because it's just a matter of saying, okay, it's not that I, I wish I could do this or, you know, maybe sometime, you know, in 10, 15 years, okay, eventually that'd be really cool to do. No, it's a matter of, I want to do this. I'm going to do this next year or in two years or in three years, you know, whatever it may be, but within a reasonable limited time frame that actually allows you to put concrete steps into motion and then as soon as you start talking about that plan and you're locking yourself into it with accountability because you're telling other people about it, then you start working backwards and you're saying, okay, now what do I need to do to actually make this come true? Right. And the reality is that if you want to do something, chances are you're going to be able to do it. Yeah. A couple of questions from that. Um, one, 
Have you been successful in every attempt you've ever made for whatever, whether it's a climb? Right. So how do you deal with that failure um, to not allow you to set you back too far? Failure is a completely normal and integral part of the process. I have failed on so many, many things. I mean, the speed record that we were just talking about in Aconcagua, you know, I've failed on the main mission and at the same time accidentally set off my outdoor career with a much smaller record, right, that then snowballed into bigger things down the road. So that's just one example. But I have failed on so many things. I've dropped out of so many races. You know, I have turned around on so many climbs. I mean, heck, I sometimes, again, step out my front door and I go and walk with the dog and, you know, I want to be out there for you know, 45 minutes and I turn around after 10 because I just, you know, I'm not feeling it. and It doesn't, doesn't seem like it's the day for it. So yeah, I've turned around a lot. I failed a lot. I think what's important there is to one, just rationally understand that um, there are ups and downs and, you know, on some days you're crushing it and some days you're not, and that's okay. As long as you keep moving forward and you keep going anyway. So to not, you know, let that define you when you do fail. But I think the other part is also to, try and focus on the process and on the journey and not on the outcome. So, you know, for me, some of my best days in the mountains have been days where I've turned around and I haven't made the summit, but they were fantastic days because I was in a beautiful area. I was trying really hard. I was right at the edge of my comfort zone and I made smart decisions. You know, when it was unsafe for me to continue or when it was too much, I made the decision to turn around. I came back with a smile on my face. Right. And some of my worst days in the mountains on the flip side have been days where I ignored sound decision making and where I was just so hung up on wanting to go and get to that top or, you know, set that record or whatever that I was pushing way beyond what was reasonable, what was safe and what I should have done. And, you know, if you can find it in yourself to truly enjoy the path and the journey and not just think about, oh, you know, I got to get to the summit of Kilimanjaro because I want to be able to show that picture to all of my friends and, you know, brag about it. Like, no, that's not what it's about, right? It's about traveling to Tanzania. It's about making the commitment to say, I'm going to try to climb an almost 20,000 foot peak. You know, I'm going to go and embark on that journey of preparing for it and training for it. And then if you don't get there, who cares? You know, the, the journey can't be taken away from you. So it's really the focus on the process that makes all the difference. I think, I think about a couple of years ago, um, I hiked up Guadalupe Peak, which is the tallest mountain in Texas. Um, and you know, we started like, you know, four o'clock in the morning to try to get there as quick as we could. And we got up there and that that's really the only large peak around. So you can see for miles into the Texas desert, we got up there and we were completely in the clouds. Couldn't see a thing. And you're just like, man, I just spent all this time walking up this mountain and this is, but you know, we got, we did get to the top. And that was the cool part. And it was a great story, which also for two years later, I'm like, well, I got to go back and I got to summon it when I can actually look. And two years later, I brought another group of friends up and I was like, wow, this view is amazing. You know, so it was really cool. It, going back to one other thing, um, I was watching that YouTube video when you led the women um, up Anaconda. And one thing that stuck out to me, there's a, there's a brief moment where it's at night, somebody's walking through snow and rock, and the video almost looks slow motion, but it's not. And I bring that up because I think it is a highlight of any person who is wanting to start and do anything. 
like at that, you were obviously very high altitude at that point. And that's literally at that point, the fastest that person could move. But the difference was, is that she was moving. That was it. She was taking, I mean, it literally looked like she was in slow motion taking a step forward. But as long as she put her foot down, her left foot down, and the right one came up, that's all that she had to do in that very moment. And I think about how key that is for any person who's wanting to take the step. Like, it is literally one step to the next step. One might be harder than the other, but I would really, um, you know, ask the listeners, go Google Sonny Stroer's name on YouTube, and that video will come up, and just watch it, and you'll see um, that I think that's a highlight for people is that that small clip is what it's about, whether you're climbing a wall, whether you're walking in the park, um, just every step counts. Absolutely. And, you know, that's so true, Danielle. It's one of those things where every step counts and every moment counts and every decision counts, right? So every time you make that decision to not be on the couch, that is a decision that puts you into that life that you know you're envisioning and that you want if that is what you want so for me you know when I think about it I for example you know I didn't grow up as an athlete I was a terrible runner as a kid I mean you know in the 100 yard dash my times were so terrible they didn't even show up on the like grading charts of my teachers I mean it was just it was atrocious right I hated PE and you've heard the story by now so when I started running I wasn't running well you know I wasn't running fast I wasn't having fun I wasn't I mean, there was a lot of things that weren't happening. And yet I kept running because I, well, I had a goal, but I also had faith that if I just continued to put the work in, that at some point um, things would change and it would pay off. And you know what? It has, you know, it did. I still remember vividly to this day, the very first time that I was out on a mountain trail and I had actually built enough fitness by now that I was moving well and I was enjoying myself and I was just loving it. And I felt like I was flying along that trail. I was laughing. I was giggling. I was just going, you know, I was actually on a hike with my dad at the time and I would just take off running like a little kid and, you know, run, you know, half a mile and come back to him and do the same thing all over again. And I finished that hike that day, which for me was partially run now. And I was like, wow. So I guess this is what it's all about. You know, does this mean that I'm a runner now? That's, that's really cool. And today, you know, I've been doing this for over a decade. I don't feel like a runner every day. I mean, there are a lot of days where I go out there and I feel so slow and I feel so out of shape and I feel like I have such terrible form and it's really hard and not fun. But again, you know, it's about the process. It's not, not about the outcome. And as long as you take that one step and you make that decision to not be on the couch, but to do, you know, an exercise or to go and walk a little bit more as you run your errands, park a little bit farther afield, you know, and just add those steps, you know, walk those stairs every day counts. You know, what's interesting is your list of accomplishments. It's very long. You have a lot of memories, but what you just talked about was a casual hike in the mountains with your father. Like that memory is what came to mind just now. And I think that's important. Like it wasn't your fastest known time turnaround. It was that moment where you're with someone and you're experiencing nature and then you have that realization moment. I think, I just think that's so cool that that's your memory. You know, you have lots of memories, but that that one stuck out today at this moment, like that's what came to your mind is, and it's how important it is that you saw that you cherish that and it's there and it wasn't 
22,000 feet in the air. Exactly. So spend a little time talking about, um, as a woman climber, Alpine, you know, somebody in the mountains all the time, um, opening up that for more women, you have a passion for that. Obviously your all woman expedition, um, there's this, you know, off your site where you put those together, but talk about, you know, just that push of wanting to get women outdoors and to be able to experience things that traditionally you haven't, you know, you don't see documentaries on women climbing mountains like you might see today on Netflix and stuff like that. I'll step back just a little bit, um, keeping it brief, but I grew up in a really um, strong female-led household. My mom was a very strong woman. I have a sister who's very strong and I went to an all-girls school and, you know, was just surrounded by strong women pretty much all the time everywhere. And for me, there was no question that there's gender equality and that women can do anything that the boys can do. And that changed when I entered my 20s and when I was working in finance and consulting and when I went to Harvard Business School, to be honest. And then I noticed the difference even more as I started pursuing big objectives in the big mountains, because you know, in the big mountain realm, which I kind of take to be in the, you know, six, seven, 8,000 meter range. Actually, there aren't good data on that whole range of altitude um, peaks, but we do know that on 8,000 meter peaks, you know, the 14 tallest peaks in, in the world, only one out of every 10 climbers is a female. And that seems antiquated and unnecessary to me. I mean, I'm not necessarily proposing that the ratio should or needs to be 50-50 because I do think that there are some differences and just, um, you know, preferences and, you know, risk tolerances and all of that between the genders. But one in 10 seems a little bit extreme. And the experience that I had when I climbed my first big mountains on my own was just very strange. And again, it seemed antiquated and unnecessary where a lot of people would look at me and say, hey, wait, you're here on your own. What, no, where's your, you know, where's your partner? Where's your guy? Like, where's your husband? Where's your boyfriend? I'm like, I'm no, there is none. I'm just out here climbing. Like those four dudes are over there who are all here, you know, independently of each other, solo and unsupported as well, but nobody is giving them, you know, a funny look or asking stupid questions, right? So Aaron stuck with me and I decided I just want to complain about it, but I wanted to do something about it. And that's when I started All Expeditions, which is my all women's uh, mountaineering backcountry um, guiding organization. And it's really interesting, you know, still today, I've now been running off for a number of years and I've had lots and lots of all women teams on various big peaks. We still get, you know, a lot of strange commentary and a lot of, you know, just kind of outdated perspectives and that subtle bias where, you know, we'll be on the approach hike to base camp, which is, you know, on a mountain like Aconcagua, where hiking to base camp is not the big deal, right? The big deal is trying to go and climb the mountain. But we'd be on the hike to base camp and, you know, pass teams that are either co-ed or all men. And, you know, some of the men, usually it's, um, you know, I hate to stereotype, but it tends to be white older gentlemen in their you know 50s and 60s and you know they'll look at us and say oh ladies great job you're doing it you know you're wow you're almost to base camp and I'm like yeah great job you you're doing it you're almost to base camp well done man right it's like really what is going on here there's nothing in the mountains that should make it disproportionately more difficult or more challenging for a woman to go and climb those mountains than it does for a man. 
other than our preconceived notions that this is not something that women do. Right. And that is changing slowly. It is changing for the positive, thankfully, but there's still a lot more work to do. And that's why I'm very happy to be able to play a role in that. Well, you're doing a great job there. Um, did I see recently you just spent some time in Alaska? I did. I was in Alaska um, about a month ago on the Iditarod Trail. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think like I, I know the Iditarod Trail is the large dog race, you know, from Nome to Anchorage. But um, there's a different piece to it as well that you participated in. Do you, since that's so fresh, do you mind giving us a perspective on what that was? Sure. So the Iditarod Trail, as you were saying correctly, Daniel, is you know, a roughly 1,000-mile route that takes you from Anchorage to Nome. And there is a big um, sled dog race on it every year that's super well-known and super popular. There's also a much smaller race on it. Actually, has a couple of different races. But there are, uh, this particular race that I was taking part in is a human-powered race that follows the same trail. It's got a small field of competitors. I think there were about 60 of us this year. And you can choose if you want to um, ski, be on foot, which means you know either running or snowshoes, depending on, on the snow conditions, or uh, be on a bicycle with fat tires, so a fat bike, to go and try to cover either the short distance, which is 300 miles, or the long distance, which is 1,000 miles all the way to Nome. And um, I was just there for the second year in a row and did the short distance, the 300 miles to McGrath uh, on skis. When you say I just did the short distance, it was 300 miles. <laughs> that's still, I mean, to think about doing that on skis. Uh, wow, that's a huge accomplishment. Were the temperatures uh, crazy while you were doing that? Yes and no. So it all depends on what you define as crazy and what you define as normal. Um, this year, the temperatures were actually very warm which means I think the colds it ever got was in the single digits. And most of the days it was in the 20s, sometimes in the 30s. One day was even as warm as the 40s. And while that is nice in some ways, because, you know, you don't have to deal with extreme cold and be quite as diligent, it actually creates its own set of issues um, in Alaska because uh, it creates, you know, areas of open water and overflow, which is when you have water standing on top of, you know, and lakes and rivers and um, it essentially creates a lot more risk of you getting wet and when you get wet and then you're exposed to cold temperatures that's what's really dangerous it's not so much the you know dry and cold negative 20 it's the right. warm and wet 20s and 30s so that's what we were dealing with this year and that was um, a little bit challenging but the conditions ended up being relatively friendly while I was out on the trail that's still amazing just uh, thinking about that for sure so what what's your future looking like when it comes to expeditions and being a sponsored athlete what, what are you planning for I have a number of very different plans so you know at this point in my life I actually split my time between guiding full-time I own you know my women's guide business as well as a guide business in southern Utah that does desert um, day hiking tours and photography tours that are kind of off-road based so you know that's at this point my my professional obligation um, and then, of course, I am an athlete and I have a lot of personal projects in terms of wanting to go and do bigger runs and races and speed records and mountains and all of that. So between the two or the three, really, um, I have a lot of international expeditions coming up this year. I'm going to Peru, Kyrgyzstan, hopefully if the situation down there is stable enough, uh, Tanzania, Argentina, again, you know, a lot of different places with uh, my all-female teams. And then I am currently 
putting together a plan to hopefully return to Alaska this coming year because the Adoro Trail is such a special experience. I really want to do that again. I actually want to do it again multiple times. You know, I know that eventually I'll want to go and do the entire thousand miles to Nome, but I also um, have been able to talk my husband into maybe doing this race with me, you know, the short version. Now, he's not an endurance athlete. He's quite a bit older than I am. And um, yeah, he really doesn't have much background in that type of adventuring. Now, he's a big time adventurer. He's a very accomplished rock climber, big wall climber. You know, he's done lots of expeditions, but he's never done anything um, like that from an endurance perspective. Yeah, like ultra stuff. Exactly, ultras. He just, he hasn't, you know, he ran a marathon once like 30 years ago without training, but decided he didn't like it. And so that's the only time he ever did any sort of endurance racing. Um, anyway, so we are hoping to race in Alaska together this coming year, and that will require quite a bit of work and preparation because um, we are hoping to do it on bicycles. And neither he nor I are really mountain bikers. I mean, him more so than me. I personally hate bicycles. I have a very poor history with them. And that means that I will have to learn how to not just bike very well, but how to fat bike in the snow with a machine that'll probably weigh somewhere between 70 and 80 pounds because you have to have it loaded up with all of your gear. So that's going to take up a lot of the next couple of months. Yeah, that'll be, uh, I've mountain biked in the past and my middle brother has been a cyclist his whole life. So um, I've ridden around on his fat bike and being a mountain biker and then riding on that, that's a very different experience in itself. Um, so that's, it's a whole nother world there. Yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't know because I'm not a mountain biker. Um, I road biked for one single year when my best friend decided she really wanted to do an Ironman race. And by the way, this is another case in point, you know, in terms of making goals and then planning for how to accomplish those. So my best friend, who is also not an endurance athlete, decided that she wanted to um, complete an Ironman race because she walked past the finish line of one and thought that the vibe was so cool and she really wanted to do that and uh, asked me if I'd do it with her. And I said, oh, I really don't think I want to, but if you really want to, you know, sure, why not? And so she signed us both up for the race and we had a year to prepare for it. And, you know, I was already an endurance athlete, so at least I knew that I had the aerobic base, but she started from scratch. You know, the only thing that she'd done before was run a half marathon. That was it. Um, both of us had to go out and buy road bikes. You know, both of us had to go and start up, you know, with all the training. And um, yeah, we did. And we finished that race together and... Awesome. 15 and a half hours, which is 30 minutes below the cutoff, but we accomplished the goal. And then I sold my road bike the very next day because I really don't enjoy cycling. <laughs> wow. That's a really cool story. So what, if people want to learn more about you um, and what you're doing with uh, Dreamland Safari Tours, what's the best way they can find out about you, Sunny? You can find me online. Uh, my parents tried to make it difficult with my last name, unfortunately. So you're probably going to have to spell that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, my last name is Stroer, which is S-T-R-O-E-E-R. -E so if you Google Sunny Stroer, you'll find my personal website, which is sunnystroer.com. You can find me on Instagram. That's kind of what I try to keep the most updated. Uh, my handle there is just S-S-T-R-O-E-E-R. -E and uh, more search for Sunny Stroer Adventure, you'll find it as well. And then, you know, if you're interested in either the women's mountaineering guiding or the desert guiding down here in, in Utah, um, you can go and look up Dreamland Safari Tours. That's the Utah Desert Business or AW Expeditions. That's A-W Expeditions. Um, that's my women's mountaineering business. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. You've, uh, you know, I think we've talked about it. People will look at your list of accomplishments and just 
be in awe of what you've accomplished in the short amount of time, becoming a professional sponsored athlete. But I think the story here, though, is you rising up from a background of not being an outdoor adventurist and taking that first step, deciding that, wow, I found my passion and how do I pursue that passion, which is funny because when we talk about sign out podcast, you're the moment that you left Bain, you kind of signed out and was like, you're ready to go to that next step. But I, I like for people to hear these stories because I think what you talk about is achievable. Um, I'm not going to ever probably go down to Argentina to climb a big mountain or go to Nepal. But, you know, for me, doing just Guadalupe Peak in Texas was a fun accomplishment to take friends on. Um, or the next person, it may just be getting out and doing a 5K, which for them is a big accomplishment. And I think your life shows that, um, all the things that you've done, that it's really one step at a time. And the memories you make with those around you and having that cast of people and family and friends that support you are important. So I just I just appreciate that you took the time today to give us this story. I think it's a great story and um, I wish you well and all your future adventures, whether it's leading people up mountains or doing your record times. Thank you, Ben. Special thanks to four-wheel pop-up campers, purveyors of vehicle-based adventure, for their generous support of the Sign Out podcast. Learn more about four-wheel pop-up campers and their variety of quality base camp adventure products by visiting 4wh.com. That's F-O-U-R-W-H.com. Thanks for listening to the Sign Out podcast. And make sure you check out our website at signoutco.com. We have original design hats and t-shirts and stickers, so check those out. Also, if you could please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. And the intro and outro music was actually made by myself, Caleb J. Murphy. If you want to hear more, check out calebjmurphy.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Sign Out Podcast is proudly brought to you by Outdoor by Four Magazine, a preeminent publication for responsible vehicle-based adventure travel, including overlanding, with family-friendly content that resonates with a broad audience of adventurers, whether in a 4x4 vehicle, on two wheels, in a canoe or kayak, or traveling by foot. Outdoor by Four Magazine's focus is on visual storytelling that appeals to the broadest range of outdoors enthusiasts while providing expert advice in the field as well as dynamic photography and stories that inspire. You can pick up a copy of Outdoor by 4 magazine by visiting your local bookstore or by visiting the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com.